Hello, Molo, Salbona, Jumbo, and welcome to Every Nation Durban. We are part of a global family of churches with the purpose to honor God by establishing Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible churches and campus ministries in every nation. You can find us in big cities like London, New York, Paris and Joburg. You can also find us in nations like Bangladesh, Botswana, China and even Hawaii. In Durban, we have a local vision of being a healthy church that starts other healthy churches. Our mission is reach, disciple, impact. We want to reach every person, every campus, and every nation. Join this mission to honor God and advance His kingdom. Morning, morning, church. Last time I said, hey, yo, this time I'm just going to stick to good morning. Um, I hope everybody had an awesome week. And if not, uh, just remember that God is still good. So let's just, yeah, let's just come together and lift up our hands lift up our heads and worship God um, Romans 8 tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which we have in Christ Jesus so as we go into worship today let us bring everything we have um, to God if it's a heavy heart laid at his feet the Bible says we have been given the spirit of praise um, we've been given the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness if it is gratitude and joy, give him thanks and make a joyful noise. Let us come boldly before the throne of our gracious God. Amen. Lord 
church i hope everyone is good in this morning and that you enjoyed worship um, i want to take this moment and greet our first time visitors so hello if you are new uh, please use uh, the comment section uh, to give us your name and let us know where you're from we will really love to connect with you but also if you want to connect with us um, uh, on, on the description there is a whatsapp number use that number uh, to get connected with us um, today, church, we, we have a guest preacher who's not really a guest. Uh, he's one of our pastors in Johannesburg. His name is uh, Pastor Dorian. Before he comes up to share the word, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I commit this time to you. I believe your plans for me are good and that everything good uh, starts with your word. Your word brings life healing and direction. I treasure your word more than my daily bread. I boldly confess that my mind is alert, my heart is receptive. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Let us enjoy the word. Well, good morning and welcome to Every Nation Durban this morning. You might be looking and going, you're welcoming us, but we have no idea who you are. Well, my name is Dorian Wrigley. 
I'm a pastor elder in the Every Nation Church up here in Rosebank in Johannesburg. But primarily, God has called me into the marketplace. And so I kind of serve with one foot in the, one foot in the church and one foot in the marketplace. But I'm sold out and I love Jesus. And, um, and it is such an honor for me to be with you guys again today. Those of you that were part of the church last year around this time may remember that I was up to do a marketplace seminar and preached with you on the Sunday morning. And it is so good to have this privilege once again to be with you. I um, just love your pastors, Wayne and Trish. They are two of my most favorite people on the whole planet. And uh, you are truly blessed to have them as your pastors. And so, Wayne, Trish, thank you again for this opportunity uh, to be able to share with you guys today. But before we climb into the word this morning, uh, a word which I believe God has given you, the word that I believe God has given us uh, for a time like this. And the title of my sermon is going to be Hope in the Midst of Economic Crisis. And I trust that we're going to explore some awesome concepts in God's Word this morning together and that they're going to just touch us and move us to a place where God wants us to be. But before we start, let's just commit this time to God in prayer. Father, what an absolute opportunity and privilege it is for us to be able to spend this time delving into your word, seeking out your promises, and understanding what it is that you're saying to us at a time like this. Father, our heart's desire in prayer is that we might be like the sons of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel needed to do, that we might be like them to know what we need to do as the church in this nation at this time. Thank you, Father. Amen. Well, what I'd like to speak about today is a a sermon entitled Hope in the Midst of Economic Crisis. And I don't know about you, but what an absolutely crazy, what an absolutely confusing and mixed up world we seem to be living in right now. It's almost as if we seem to be simply pivoting from one crisis to the next one. Just when we seem to kind of think like we have one thing under control, we get hit by the next one. You know, if COVID-19 wasn't enough, uh, we then get hit by um, this massive economic crisis where global, globally world economies are down 30, 35, 40% in some cases. And then if that's not bad enough, we get hit by this brutal murder of George Floyd, which sparks a whole new wave of focus on racism. And I don't know about you, friends, but I look at this and I kind of say to myself, hold on, wait a minute, what am I not getting here? What, what am I not seeing at the moment? How do I make sense of this upheaval at this time? And so in order for us to understand what God is saying to us in this moment, in order for us to process what we as the church need to be doing, it's important for us to understand the context of the culture that we are finding ourselves in. And that culture, friends, is one which calls itself a post-Christian culture. And we call this a post-Christian culture because it obviously and clearly by its name followed what was known as a Christian culture, a time when Christianity was the dominant culture in the world. 
And Christianity became the dominant culture in the world at around 300 AD. It was when an emperor called Constantine apparently saw this vision, a vision of a cross, and he heard these words which said, In my name, in the sign, conquer. Constantine had an incredible victory. And from that point onwards, Christianity was institutionalized as the dominant culture of the day. And that Christian culture, that dominant culture persisted for about 1,200 to 1,500 years. But unfortunately, this dominant Christian culture didn't make the whole world, or the world as a whole, as should I say, a better place. Because even though it was Christian in name, it was not kingdom in nature. And so in reaction to this failed Christian culture, a post-Christian culture emerges. Just like the Christian culture replaced a pagan culture, this post-Christian culture now replaces this Christian culture as the dominant culture, the dominant way of thinking. And so the main problem that we see with society and this is according to the post-Christian culture, their view, their ethos, their, their presuppositions. Their central presupposition, the central basis for this, pre, uh, this post-Christian culture, is that the main problem with society is religion, especially the religion of Christianity. And they further presuppose that it is possible to obtain the values the same values that we see in God's word, it's possible to attain, obtain those values without the need for a relationship which is submitted to God as our King, as our Lord and our Savior. And so a post-Christian culture claims that we can achieve a certain state of utopia, that this world can become a better place and it will become a better place if we just give it enough time because eventually the world will catch on. That the way that we see the world as progressives, as progressives that do not need a Christian culture because we are beyond that, eventually the world will see that that makes sense. And everybody will agree that this is the way we should be living. And then everything will be beautiful. Post-Christian culture presupposes that we can build a world that reflects the fruit of the kingdom, but without the king any central place upon the throne. So let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves, how's this post-Christian culture working out? <laughs> and in short, the answer is not great. Because even though the world has never been more technically advanced, which is meant to be bringing us closer, loneliness and isolation are at an all-time high. And even though we have democracy, and individual rights which are more widespread right now than they've ever been at any other time in history. We find ourselves, despite these individual rights, we find ourselves all being pulled together, being bombarded and dragged deeper and deeper into consumerism, where we're all constantly in search of that same elusive goal of whatever it is that's going to make us happy. Even though life expectancy is at an all-time high, yet so are levels of anxiety and mental illness 
And they've never been as high at any other time in history as they are today. And so even though we are meant to be evolving and progressing towards this utopian culture, we are constantly reminded by global shocks that this post-Christian culture, this post-Christian worldview is under threat. And so we find ourselves, this world we're living in, this world dominated by this post-Christian culture, finds itself in the midst of another crisis. Because it realizes that it's impossible to hold the world. It's impossible for us to hold each other to a set of values without acknowledging the ultimate truth, which is the source of those values. And so I guess we pause as the church and we ask ourselves this question. Are we doing any better? And unfortunately, as a rule, we are not. In the midst of all this confusion, we find ourselves as the church stumbling around equally as confused. We find ourselves not exactly sure who or what we should be supporting. Which political group? Which political movement? Black Lives Matter hits the scene when George Floyd is brutally murdered on camera. And as Christians, we feel ourselves drawn to that statement because it's a statement of truth that black lives do indeed matter. And we are drawn because in our spirit, it carries a ring of social justice that we see in God's word. We see this in Matthew 25 when he says, what you do for the least of these, what you do for the weak, what you do for the naked, what you do for the hungry, you do for me. And so it resonates in our heart. Yes, black lives do matter. And so we find ourselves being drawn towards the left. But as we start investigating it, and we look at what the organization Black Lives Matter stands for, we find ourselves becoming a little uneasy. Because whilst we agree with the social justice angle of standing up and defending the weak, we find ourselves at odds with um, their views on family values. We find ourselves at odds with um, the cancel culture, which suppresses our ability of freedom of speech by putting anything that is in a disagreement with the left or with its views, by putting all of that under this banner of being hate speech. And so if you disagree, you're politically incorrect. And so as the church, we find ourselves strangely confused, saying we identify with that social justice, but we are concerned with the, all the other things, all the other stuff that comes along with the organization. And then we find ourselves strangely drawn to the right because there seems to be more of a reflection and an embracing of conservative Christian values. But we also just can't quite shake the fact that there doesn't seem to be the same love, the same kindness, the same uh, sacrificial element that we see in God's word when it comes to those that are not as well off as ourselves. And so the right does not seem to stand up for the poor, 
does not seem to stand up for racism and gender inequality to the same degree that the left does. And so as the church, we say, God, where do we go? What do we do? Who do we support? Which one is right? But friends, here's the answer. Because when we look at God, we see that God is not confused. Because whilst we as the church might be, God is not. Because God does not feel an obligation to adopt or support any particular political, society, system, or ideology. God is king. And he has his own kingdom. And God has his own system that he has put in place to support his kingdom values. And so God does not adopt our views, our policies, and our values. God says, I've given you these values and I've given you a kingdom system to ensure that they will always be at the forefront of society. And so, friends, when we adopt his kingdom system, only then will it bring peace. Only then will it bring harmony. Only then will it bring economic prosperity. Only then will it bring true joy in a way that is sustainable. Yes, the world systems political movements and ideologies might bring relief in the short term, but for things to truly be sustainable, for them to last for eternity, we need kingdom principles to support our kingdom values. Friends, we've seen this throughout history. God uses crises events to bring his people back to the place where they can choose to embrace him or reject him. God uses crises events to get us to decide, Lord, am I going to follow you or am I not? Am I going to embrace all of you or choose to just pick those bits and pieces that I want? If we do the latter, friends, we are effectively subscribing to something which is post-Christian in values. And it might bring short-term solutions, but will not bring long-term benefits. We see this in the Gospels when Jesus speaks about the parable of the prodigal son. A son who insists that he wants to build his own kingdom separate from the kingdom of his father. A son that insists that he wants to do it his way without needing to submit to his father. And the father allows it. The son goes off. And one crisis after the next eventually brings the son to the place where he realizes In my father's house, his servants live better than I do. In my father's house, there is a sustainability to these kingdom principles and values which have all but evaporated in my own life. And he turns and he runs back to the father and he's welcomed with open arms. Friends, crises events are God's way of patiently reminding us That when we're ready to acknowledge that he is king, when we're ready to submit to his kingdom principles, that he is there to welcome us back so that we might see not just short-term temporal things, but able to see things lasting for eternity. Those values, those kingdom values and promises in place for eternity. So let's reflect on what the gospel of the kingdom is and how it differs from any post-Christian modern culture. 
The gospel of the kingdom we see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 to 28. God used it and he established it in the lives of Adam and Eve when he set them up in the garden. When he set them up right at the beginning of creation. Let's read together from verse 26. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Friends, right there we see God's original plan for all of creation. We see God's original plan for mankind, for you and I. God's original plan was that through Adam and Eve, from Eden, the entire world would be filled with his presence. God's original plan was that from Eden, Adam and Eve, in submission to him, would take his presence to the ends of the world, that they would be fruitful and multiply, and that through them, the whole of creation would be blessed. Through them, the whole of creation would be stewarded through their work. And so this is what it meant. This is what God meant for his kingdom to look like. And on the slide you'll see that first and foremost, God said, that through intimacy with Him, through intimacy with the Father, through experiencing His presence personally, through that personal, loving relationship with God, Adam and Eve were meant to accomplish all of God's plans and God's purposes. This intimate relationship with God was meant to be their primary relationship. But as they would unfortunately discover, All the other foundational relationships of which there are four in total, all dependent on the primary one, our relationship, our intimate relationship with God. The second foundational relationship that flows out of an intimate relationship with God is how they relate to themselves. What is their identity? And an identity outside of an identity in Christ, outside of an identity imposed by God, is no identity at all. And Adam and Eve, from this relationship with God, their identity flowed. They realized that they are sons of God. They realized that they are created in His very image. And as a result, just like is said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, which speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, this fruit was abundant in their lives because of who they were in God, their identity in Him. And so they were filled with joy with love, with peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, friends, without the fruit of the Spirit operating in our lives, it's impossible that the other relationships can function the way God intended for them to function. And so an intimate relationship with a father correct understanding of our identity in Him, in other words, the right relationship with ourselves, then leads us to be able to have loving, caring, and sharing relationships with others. Adam and Eve were in complete unity with each other. That unity flowed from their intimate relationship with God, their Father. They walked in love towards each other. 
Just like one uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, their first consideration other than for God was for the other one, was for the other person. There's no hint of greed. There's no hint of selfishness because they're in unity. They're in one with the Father. They had the perfect marriage. They had the perfect working partnership. There were no issues of gender inequality or forced submission. There were no issues of manipulation to try and get the other partner to do what they wanted for themselves because they considered the other more important and higher than themselves. And friends, this beautifully opened the way for the fourth and the final relationship. And that was their relationship with creation. Because you see, friends, God had set them up as stewards of that creation. They were to subdue it. They were to minister to it. They were to serve it so that it would serve the purposes and the promises of God for all of creation. And friends, right there in that picture, we see Luke chapter 10 verse 27. We see the two commandments, the commandments that sum up all other commandments. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you love Him with all your mind. And the second, like the first, that you love your neighbor as yourself. That vertical relationship was loving the Lord our God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their strength, with all their soul. And that horizontal relationship spoke about loving their neighbor as they loved themselves. Now we don't know how long things were perfect for. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know it didn't last. And Satan attacks them by doing this. He attacks the primary relationship. And what does he do? He attacks the intimacy with God their Father. And when they lose their intimacy, not only did they just lose that primary relationship, but all those other relationships turn upside down too. They no longer have an identity in God. They no longer see themselves as heirs of the king. They no longer see themselves as sons and daughters. They no longer see themselves created in the image of God. The fruits of the Spirit have evaporated from their lives. And instead of becoming uh, aware of the fruit of the Spirit, instead of becoming aware of the logs in their own eye, they now start seeing the splinters in each other's eyes. And they start becoming critical of each other. Which means that they're not able to treat each other with love, with caring and with sharing. Because what tends to happen is there's now greed and there's now selfishness and corruption has entered in. And now I try and get you to do those things that serve me and serve my needs and serve my wants. And as a result, all of creation suffers. Friends, right here in this picture is the reason why every single dominant culture fails if it fails to put God at the center, if it fails to submit itself to God as the king. Because every single dominant culture that is not based on a kingdom culture is doomed to fail. And it will repeat this cycle over and over again as more and more crises reveal themselves because they cannot succeed outside of a relationship with the king. But friends, God has a plan. And through Christ, that intimacy with the Father is restored. Jesus Christ becomes the last Adam, according to Paul in Corinthians. And he pays the price, the ultimate price for our sins, so that he can first and foremost restore us in that intimate relationship with God. And once he's restored us in that intimate relationship with God, the other three naturally fall into place. We now 
He restores us in our identity. He restores us in our purpose. We now realize once again we are joint heirs with the Father. Which means that we realize now that we can embrace the fruit of the Spirit, not in our own strength, but in His strength. Because the fruit of the Spirit is critical for us to interact with others. For healthy marriages. For healthy cross-generational relationships. For healthy cross-gender relationships. For healthy cross-cultural relationships. All of them depend on a healthy, intimate relationship with God our Father if we want them to be sustainable and to last for eternity. And finally, it sets us up so that we are able to then refulfill our mandate to be stewards and to serve God's creation. So how do we take this now and apply this to business? How do we apply this to the economic situation? How do we apply this to the crisis that we find ourselves in today? And I'd like to wrap up the sermon this morning by reflecting on a prophetic word that God gave through Pastor Carol Gosman um, earlier this year. It was in April this year, as we were just starting out in lockdown in South Africa. And there are four key themes that I'd like to pull out of that word. I'd encourage you to go and read the entire word. You can find it online, uh, Carol Gosman's uh, WordPress dot um, com account or, or rather website uh, but there are four key themes I'd like to pull out and just discuss as we kind of um, move things forward and draw to a close the first theme is this God has been purifying the nation for many years and he is turning economic hardship into an economic miracle God has been purifying the nation for many years and he is turning economic hardship into an economic miracle. A wise man once said, don't ever waste a good crisis. I'm not exactly sure whether Winston Churchill ever said that. I mean, I know a lot of people believe he did, but I couldn't find any definitive proof of that. So I'm not going to spread that rumor any further. But we know uh, that one of the um, one of the aides of, I think it was uh, President Bill Clinton said it at one time, or it might have been President Obama, in fact, I think. Um, and so I don't know exactly in what context they said it, but I do know for certain that they understood something about king, the kingdom. Because it's at the times of crisis that we are brought back to the realization that what we're doing isn't working. It's at times of crisis that God gets our attention and says, listen, are you going to keep knocking your head against the wall? Or are you going to now turn to me and say, Father, what's the solution here? Friends, I want to urge you, if there's a frustration brewing in your spirit, if there's an anxiety that's gripping your heart, don't make that don't let that force you to feel sorry for yourself or force you to blame others. Let that force us to say, Father, what are you saying to me right now? Friends, let it move us to a place of holy discontent. Let it move us to a place where we can say, Father, we desire nothing else but your presence. That same presence that God put in Eden that same presence that was the foundation of the intimate relationship with Adam and Eve, Father, we need your presence. Father, let your presence guide us. Let your presence be renewed inside of us. Father, let your presence move me from this crisis to the place that you want me to be. Friends, it's that presence that was the catalyst that was meant to move Adam and Eve to the ends of the world. And it's that same presence, friends, in our life 
that is going to move us to the place where God wants us to be functioning in the sweet spot of his purpose and his destiny and calling. Friends, every great move of God, when you look through history, when you look through the word of God, started with a remnant, a small group of people who became wholly unsatisfied with the state of their hearts and chose to press in to his presence. A young Evan Roberts in Wales, 1904, praying with a small group of young people, 17 in total, and they feel the Lord challenging them to put away any unconfessed sin, to put away any doubtful habits, to obey the Spirit promptly, and to confess Christ publicly. These 17 people, friends, were renewed in their own hearts, were pressing into the presence of God to such a degree that God used them as the catalyst to spark an incredible revival in Wales, which touched the lives of over a 100,000 people. Friends, it starts with a holy discontent. It starts by saying, God, purify us. Purify me, Father. Let me engage and press into your presence, Lord. I desire that intimacy with you, Lord. Because from that, healthy functioning and all those other relationships will unlock your destiny and your purpose and your calling. The second theme in the word that Pastor Carol Gosman shared with us is this. She said this, I'm not dictated to by the world's gender. I'm not dependent on the world, world's political and economic forecasts. Friends, God is not constrained by the world's gender. He's not constrained by the world's economic forecasts. He, he is not concerned about why the market seems to be running whilst the rest of the world seems to be collapsing because God is not locked into that system. Now, the S&P index, it's the index that measures the... Um, the U.S. stock market, it's one that's probably quoted um, most frequently, um, has returned an average of 10 to 11% per annum for 94 years. Why do I mention that? I mention that because in our minds, we sometimes feel, well, maybe that's the benchmark. But friends, let me give an example why God's economy is so different from any economy, even the most flourishing one historically in the world. In Mark chapter 4 verse 20, Jesus speaks about a 30-fold, 60-fold, and a 100-fold return. That is 30 times, 60 times, and 100 times. Friend, we're not talking about 10% or 30% or 60% return here. We're talking about a 3,000%, 6,000%, 10,000% return. Friends, for some reason, we've lost sight of what kingdom returns really could look like. And so we seem to set, to settle for what the world's returns of 10%, 20%, or 30% would look like. Friend, God has not called us to mirror and to match the world's returns. God is calling us to a whole new level. God is calling us to a, way, a place where we press into his presence 
and we say, Father, speak to us and show us. But here's the risk, friends. Just like in the past, when the church was criticized for colonizing nations and bringing Western culture to those nations when they brought the gospel. So instead of just bringing the gospel, they brought the culture along with it, which has been a great criticism in the church. I feel that as a church today, we are so conscious of that, so careful not to do that, that the reversal is more often true today. That the church itself is being is at risk of being colonized by the post-Christian culture. And we're at risk of being colonized by a spirit of comfort and consumerism. Anything that affects our comfort, anything that affects our happiness, we feel cannot be of God. And unfortunately, we are being colonized. We are being lulled to sleep. We are being lulled into this false sense of contentment until a crisis comes along and shakes it up. Friends, across the world, God is drawing kingdom, thinking, marketplace leaders together who are determined to operate in a different spirit. A group of men and women who understand that it all belongs to Him. A group of men and women that know that although it all belongs to God, He has called us to steward it on His behalf. A group of men and women are expecting a great return. Not a 10, 20 or 30% return, but a 3,000, 6,000 and 10,000% return. But here's the key. A group of men and women that when they experience that great return don't suddenly become confused and fall into the trap that think and start thinking that all of this wealth belongs to them for their own consumer comforts. But who will constantly be seeking God for ways to deploy this wealth to, to see the advancement of his kingdom. And why is that? Because the third theme in the prophecy that Carol brought to us was that God is leveling the playing field for the people of Southern Africa. A recent study by the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg did a wealth study. And in the study they demonstrated the unequal distribution of wealth in South Africa. And this is what they find. This is, sorry, what they found. In this slide, you'll see that the bottom 50% of our nation own none of the country's wealth. Zero percent. In fact, zero is not right because actually they own less than zero. On average, the bottom 50% of this country's population are in debt to the tune of 16,000 rand on average. The next 40% of the country own 15% of our nation's wealth. Now just to put it into context, you are in this category if you own assets of 30,000 rand. If you either have cash in your bank of 30,000, you've got a car, uh, you've got a television, you've got a sofa maybe, You've got assets that together add up to 30,000 rand. If that's you, you fit into the top next 40% or the top 50% of the country. 
And then the top 10% own an incredible 85% of our nation's wealth. And just to put that into context, if you have assets to the value of 500,000 rand, in other words, you own a house that's partially paid off. Maybe you own a car or two that are partly paid off. And your assets account, have you built up assets that are more or less half a million rand, you will find yourself in the top 10% of the wealth in this nation. Now, friends, when I looked at that slide, when I saw that data for the first time, it broke my heart. I looked at this and I said, God, how does a nation thrive? How does a nation survive when over half of its population has absolutely no wealth to its name? Friends, it broke my heart and I know that it needs to break our heart as the church. What is God's heart for the poor? What is God's heart for the weak? What is God's heart for the widow and the orphan? And friends, what role is God calling you and I to play in being the vehicle for his deliverance to bring about a change into this context? The final theme that I want to touch on before I close today is this. God is turning the fire of adversity into the fire of revival. God is taking that fire of adversity. He's going to take the fire, the crisis that we're in, and he's going to turn that into the fire of revival. Mark says in his book, The Reappearing Church, speaks about how revivals happen when renewals go viral. Revivals happen when that remnant, when that small group of people who trust God, who press in and say, God, we need your presence more than anything else, Father. We need your presence because, Father, we need the restoration of those kingdom relationships so that we can see your plans and purposes established. When that goes viral, we see revival. God always starts with a remnant. He always starts with the few. And I believe God is challenging us today. Will you be part of that remnant? Are you at the place where you say, Father, use me. Father, take this crisis. I'm not going to point fingers at others. I'm going to say, Lord, shine the spotlight on my life, Lord, that I might press into your presence and trust you for your solutions. The word of God spoke, sorry, speaks in 1 Chronicles 12 about a group of people known as the sons of Issachar. And this was a very, very critical time in Israel's history. Saul and Jonathan have just been killed in battle. And Israel holds its breath. Will they recognize David as their king or is there going to be competition for the throne? But God is in control and one by one, the tribes all start sending troops to David saying, we are with you. They start sending men to be part of David's army. And some send a few thousand, some send many tens of thousands. But when it comes to Issachar, there's a different tone. Because the Bible says that the sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel needed to do. And so whilst all the other tribes are sending troops and saying, David, there you go, look after them, they're yours. 
Issachar doesn't send troops. They send generals. They send leaders. They send men who understand the times. And these generals don't just go and help David out. These generals take their families, their men, and all of their families, and they move. These guys are all in. They are saying, we will do whatever needs to be done, because we know that David not doesn't just need men right now. David needs leaders. He needs people that can together with him process what needs to be done. David needs men. They're going to stand by him, challenge him, and lead others to accomplish what Israel needs. Friends, right now God is raising up men and women to be like the sons of Issachar. Men and women who understand the times that we are living in. Men and women that are going to say, Father, I see what's happening. I see the crisis. But Lord, I start by saying, fill me with your presence so that I might know and understand what it is that you want me to do. Friends, in conclusion, in my own life I've seen God allow the stripping away of all of those things that would replace an absolute reliance on Him. You see, friends, God is a jealous God. He is the author and the finisher. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And if He truly is going to take that place in our life we need to come to the end of ourselves and God will allow the stripping away of those things that compete with the attention that should all be his that compete for the attention of our hearts friends I've seen God allow the systematic removal of those things which I've come to rely on for comfort and security Because subtly these things, even though I thought were blessings and originally were blessings from God, were subtly becoming idols in my life and eroding that intimacy that is reserved for him and for him alone. Friend, over the last 20 and 30 years, I've seen business partnerships implode. I've seen sources of revenue dry up. I've seen assets and my wealth taken. I've experienced anger. I've experienced sadness, frustration, confusion. What I believed had been God's, what had, what I originally believed was God's inheritance for me, I saw that ripped from my grasp. And started affecting my identity. It started making me question, challenge, God, where are you? And I realized that this was a crisis that God was using to strip away those things in my life that need not and should not be there. God was bringing me to the place where I could acknowledge the extent of my brokenness before him. Realize the extent to which I had replaced certain things with what should have been filled only with an intimate relationship with him. But friends, it was at that time It was at those times that the voice of God once again rang loudly in my spirit. And instead of beating me up, wooed me back and said, Son, are you ready? Are you ready for me to take the central place in your heart? Are you ready for me to become that intimate God, that intimate Father? Are you ready for my presence to fill and consume me? And friends, it has wrecked me, it has changed me, 
And it's allowed me to see how all those other foundational relationships became out of sync because that primary relationship wasn't filled with his presence. Friends, God is going to pour out an excessive wealth, including financial wealth, on those who he can entrust it with to steward it correctly. He is going to use that wealth He's going to deploy it through those of us who he can trust to tear down the giants in society. Not through the adoption of pseudo-post-Christian cultural mandates, but rather through a remnant of believers who are prepared to press into God, who will allow him to reshape our kingdom worldview, one in which we will start by looking inward and focusing on God and saying, Lord, fill us afresh. And once you've done that, allow him to then realign those other foundational relationships in a way that truly bring about kingdom, kingdom values and kingdom purposes. And one in which we're going to partner with God for eternity. So that as we pray, as Jesus taught us how to pray, Lord, we'll see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you. I trust that as God leads you and guides you and challenges you this morning, you'll find yourself strangely drawn back into the presence of God, our Father. And so, Lord, we just commit our lives to you afresh today. Lord, we pray that where there have been any idols in our life, in our lives, in our hearts, that have caused the deflection from that intimate relationship with you, Lord, we pray that you would remove that right now. Father, fill us with your presence. Transform our hearts so that we might walk in your perfect presence. Lord, I pray right now, Lord Jesus, for the men and women that are watching this today. Lord, I know that you've called many of them to steward incredible wealth to see your kingdom built and established. And so, Father, right now, I call that down in Jesus' name. I speak that into existence in Jesus' name. Father, have your way. Amen. God bless you. I trust that God will continue to move in your heart like he has been moving in mine. And we look forward to seeing you build the kingdom together. Each of us together as part of God's bride as part of his church. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor Dorian. Uh, that was such a powerful word. Um, Jesus says, What profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Today, before we end the service, I want to give somebody an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. And if that's you, you would like to receive Jesus Christ today, I want to lead you to a prayer. Just say this prayer after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come before you and I repent from my sins and I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Come to into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, uh, I want to say to you congratulations. That's a great decision that you have ever taken and the heavens are rejoicing with that decision. We would like to walk with you um, 
please use um, the WhatsApp number and tell us uh, that you have accepted Jesus Christ uh, today. We'd like to work with you. Uh, thank you um, and have a great week. Amen. Thank you for joining Church Online today. We hope that you were inspired and challenged by today's message. We would like to encourage you to join one of our connect groups where you can make friends and discuss the word further. You can message us on 072-606-6747 to join a connect group or to send us any prayer needs you might have. To give your tithes and offering, please visit our website www.enderban.org to get our bank details and zapper code. Have a safe and blessed week.